You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I discuss the long tail of the bullwhip effect. How are the outdoor industries positioned to recover from a difficult market in 22? How do house affordability and disposable income affect our expectations for our markets? What can suppliers, distributors, and dealers do to ensure success in a market grappling with excess inventory? Let's get into it. I produced a data visualization for our most recent NPD uh, sell three report that PFB members get every month. And it shows quarter by quarter the sales for lifestyle and leisure bikes, which is this category that includes like cruisers and hybrids and and kind of like the heavier bikes that you're not going to go more than a couple miles on, you know, just cruising around the neighborhood or whatever. Sure. Quarterly sales and then um, an inventory estimate for the specialty channel quarter by quarter. It starts in 2019 and then it goes through the end of 22. And you see, you know, this moderate sales, moderate inventories, and they kind of go back and forth between being a yeah, having oversupply or being undersupplied just seasonally. And you see this huge spike in sales in the the second quarter of 2020, right? So that's like April and May when we were really rocking sales during like the early months of the pandemic. And then you start to see the inventory tick up and tick up and tick up and sales tick down and down and down yeah. as as all that demand has been satisfied with with the product. But what it means is that at the end of 22, there's significantly more inventory than we've ever seen and not a lot of folks that are interested in buying it. And, and it's a function of a few things. I, I've described bikes a few times in terms of their like complexity, how many components it takes to get a bike onto the sales floor and how many manufacturers and suppliers there are for those components, right? So like we, we tend to think of that supply chain as wider. And those cruisers take significantly fewer components to bring to market than a mountain bike, than a road bike. You know, like if if you think about a full suspension mountain bike, there's a lot of little pieces, parts that have to be on that bike and you can't ship it if you're missing one thing, right? Cruiser, you got like frame, wheels, headset, seat, seat post, freewheel, you're done. And and anyone can make a freewheel, you know, like the the supply chain is so wide for a freewheel. It's not like electronic road shifters or something like there's, there's really just a handful of folks making that stuff for the high-end road. So yeah, I'll share it, that image with our uh, with our audience afterwards. But it, it's just interesting to see how this is all played out. And and I've said in all the interviews that I've done about the bullwhip effect that it's not, you know, like there's no way really to avoid it. It's it's just the phenomenon of information traveling upstream and products traveling downstream, and it's been happening forever and ever to to every industry where there's been a huge surge in demand or a huge decrease in demand and um, Whatever it is, that information just gets distorted, and this is how it plays out in the marketplace. But it's not. This is not a doom and gloom episode. I, I wanted to talk about the recent report that we got from S and P Global, which predicts a quicker recovery than we expected originally. Like when we, I think when we talked about this a month or two ago, it was a little bit more doom and gloom. We were thinking it was going to take a lot longer to to like pull out of this demand cooling period, but as consumers are still just spending money that we have or we don't have, you know, like I 
debt is up a little bit. Um, we're we're finding that like the recession isn't happening quite like we thought it was going to. The the report still shares that um, we think there's going to be a recession in early 23, and it'll probably pull out okay the Q3 of 23, right? Um, so it's not to say that we're on the the full upswing right now, but it is to say that I think you know we the the sky isn't falling just yet. You know there there is optimism. We're gonna we're gonna pull out of it. I think that you know there there's a chicken little effect on on recession right now that you know yeah. that we've seen we've seen a lot of economists um, projecting for a recession. I, I would guess I would guess a, a significant percentage. I would guess the majority of predicted recession over the past yeah. two years and can't figure out why it's not happening. And the model, I think part of the, I think the part, part of the problem is their models aren't working um, because the job yeah. markets has continued to remain strong um, despite, despite, you know, it pushes on levers by the Fed and by other market forces that honestly at this point should have pushed unemployment higher, but you've got a consumer base that, you know, wage rates have cooled. But nobody's worried about not having a job. And I, I think that actually yeah. affects the you know consumer perception and significantly impacts consumer spending. So yeah, we're spending into debt because I'm I'm not worried that I'm not gonna get paid next week. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and like two of the biggest independent variables in this modeling that SP Global's done for us, disposable income and home affordability. Right. And so like those. The home affordability is dependent on like the housing prices, and it's also dependent on the rates. And the feds are setting the rates, and they're being aggressive at times and um, less aggressive at other times. But they're being consistent in their messaging that beatings will continue until morale improves. You know. <laughs> uh, well, they did. They did stop beating us at seventy-five basis points and lowered that yeah. to fifty basis points. So maybe it made less of a mark on my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate that we bought our house in like the first month of the pandemic. We bought right when when the conditions were um, good, and then it's taken a turn since then. But anyway, yeah, I, I like what you said, like disposable income, and even maybe just kind of twisting that a little bit to be like just spending, right? So like it it might be debt also um, that we're incurring by spending, but yeah, that consumer spending affects all of our markets. You know, this isn't just bike too. I'm, I'm sure there's categories that you have. Uh, all over the place. This, yeah. Yeah. Experiencing the same like <clears throat> long tail of the bullwhip effect. Yeah. I, right now I feel that the questions have, have, have progressed from, okay, what's happening and how does, how does this play out to what do I do with all this inventory? I mean, what, what can we do yeah. I mean, is it, you know, are we going to go with discount? Are we going to go with with um, moving around the market to meet, you know, to find, to try and search out demand where it exists in the market? And that means like, if we've got an oversupply in the US, then we can move that, some of that inventory to Asia or Europe or, you know, South America, for example, where maybe demand is higher for bicycles or any other product. We're just using that as an example, right? Mm -hmm. But now, now the conversation has turned to, okay, now what do we do? to 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 move this inventory without devaluing this yeah. product in the marketplace right and if i'm a retailer i'm thinking you know beyond that i'm like i need to get rid of some inventory because it right now warehouse space is at a very big premium in this at least in this market and oh, i don't yeah. want to i do not want to spend money keep you know keeping this inventory that i'm going to have to sell at a discount anyway so yeah. what do I, you know? What do I do if I'm a manufacturer? What I do? What do I do with with this inventory if I'm a retailer? 
how do I solve that problem? And that's kind of where that's that's where I am, at least in outdoor in terms of the analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of different strategies, but what do you think, Patrick? What what sh- what should we do with the inventory? <laughs> um, I don't think we're going to solve it in this one podcast episode just to set expectations, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I, as you know, my background is in economics, and economists are um, infamous for suggesting that the answer to any question should be it depends. Uh, well, that's going to be my answer here, right? It depends. Um, yeah. You know, like the dealers have a little bit less flexibility than brands. Like, you know, you mentioned moving between markets and, and um, you know, that that's going to happen at the brand level. It's not going to really happen at the dealer level. But I, I think dealers, at least in bike, have benefited from flexible terms from suppliers as, as everyone sort of realized, like, hey, you might not want as many bikes as you thought you wanted in 20 and 21, uh, maybe even in 22. So let's double check some of these numbers. And if you want to uh, reduce these terms there, I, I have heard that there are some brands that have allowed for greater flexibility in those terms. Uh, and, and then when it lands at the brand level, they have more flexibility, like you said, to move between markets, to look at um, direct to consumer sales, to look at yeah, a, a little bit of discounting. If I, I could share one unpopular opinion, it would be that this over inventory certainly makes a case for revisiting model years and and um evaluating how important it is for us to say hey yeah this is the 22 model because we're gonna be selling these bikes in 24 25 in some cases you know like why not just just call it the model and get rid of that number so that we i I know this is an unpopular opinion there's there's a lot of factors that go into this too right and and i've never been a brand person i've worked at a dealer and i've worked at the trade association so so my understanding of this is totally different but regardless of how creative we can get with moving inventories and and finding other markets where we can sort of right size inventories we're going to be selling some of these products for for quite a while and that's again not just bike that's i'm certain a lot of the categories that you've got too yeah, I think you you're going to find a lot of fine examples of how to deal with that actually in snow sports and the reason yeah. But I'm, I'm going to say that besides the fact that I, I probably know snow sports better than almost any category in the outdoor marketplace after spending 11 years following it is mm-hmm. that, you know, in snow, there are good snow years and bad snow years. And I look at this year, it's been great out west yeah. and it's pretty, pretty, pretty paltry in the mid-Atlantic and the east. And so manufacturers of skis and snowboards that have models like, for instance, Burton's, you know, custom flying V or... You know, the, you know, the um, vocal, uh, you know, we've got the Nomad that's been selling forever and ever and ever. And, you know, there are always new model years. And when there's a, you know, if there's a particularly bad snow year, there are instances in which, you know, we're, we're looking at, okay, so which year the Nomad are we talking about? And they can, you know, that gives them the opportunity to slow production a little bit to, to even out demand or yeah, move right. or mo- move inventory from one part of the country to the other. For instance, right now you'd want to move your inventory West, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if I was a snow shovel manufacturer, I'd just have my reps all just pounding Tahoe right now. But yeah. I mean, you get, you get the idea. And the, the reason I'm talking about snow sports is I think there are a lot of lessons that in case studies that you can look at in snow sports where this happens all the time frankly, all the time. 
Um, and it works around the world, right? When it's, sometimes mm-hmm. it snows, it snows a lot more in Europe than it does here. It just depends sure. on the mood of the high pressure system over the Arctic, right? So it, this is where you can, if if somebody's wondering, okay, what do I do? And is looking for examples of what's been done and what the outcome of that was, look in snow sports. What a great example. I, I like that you tied your aviation background and your understanding of weather patterns into this too. <laughs> Well, you know, snow sports and aviation have that in common. We spend a lot of time talking about the weather, a lot. Yeah, I went. I went to ride Keystone uh, last week. I rode on Wednesday, right? Monday it was fifty degrees in town. Tuesday it was like fifty-five degrees in town. Wednesday I took off to go ride, and I'd, I'd like picked this date. I just like set PTO for this date like three or four weeks in advance because that's how I have to schedule stuff. Sub zero. It was like <laughs> it had been so chilly. nice early in the weekend man was it cold and it was fun like it was great to go out but it was one of those days where like you you put all those layers on you know yeah uh, and it was it's it's fine you know i i have like a mask i have a you know goggles and everything so my face is all covered up and helmet and all that stuff and it was fine until i got separated from my riding buddy and so we said okay well let's let's meet up here take the lift to the top and the lifts got stuck for like 25 minutes or so. Just getting bummer. Blast, windy. Blasted by windy. the wind. Just sitting yeah. by myself. <laughs> it's cold that pressure change, be, you know. It's yeah. cold air rushes in in a in a downward motion, right? It's gonna go, mm-hmm. it's gonna it's gonna slip under that high pressure. Whoop. Yeah. All right. So this is when we start talking about weather for 10 minutes. I don't think we <laughs> no, 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 no. I, just... I think we I, I think we're talking about like, you know, inventories. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's a metaphor, right? It's high pressure, low yeah. pressure. How about that? Yeah. We can, we can tie good. it all together. Hey, 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 we got there. Really, I just <laughs> wanted to talk about snowboarding. I want to talk about it too, but I haven't been able to do a lot of it this season because the weather has not been particularly kind to me here in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, but I, I will out but, myself as someone who's only gone out four times. Uh, and, and I think if I hit... If I had like six or seven, that's a really good year for me with with a kid and with a full-time job and being two hours from the mountains. Um, you know what I realized though? And because I haven't been able to ski and, and ride as much, um, I've been riding my bike a ton yeah. more. I've been I've been skating a lot more. And I think that's hey. another that's another thing to think about when it comes to inventory. Like, you know, you can look at, you know, if you've got if you're manufacturing, you can manage your distribution. And if you're a chain retailer and you can manage where, mm-hmm. you know, what storefronts your product, you're going to have a product mix at. Weather is important to look at. And, and, and especially if you've got to move inventory, if I'm in the, if, if, if I'm selling bikes, especially cruiser bikes, casual bikes, yeah, I yeah. would be, I would be, if I could, I'd be selling that in the mid Atlantic right now. I would well, because you know, we're, it, we're riding bikes, yeah. not skiing. The, the other opportunity for dealers too, is to, invest in e-commerce you know if you haven't done that already you're you're a little bit behind but like you can sell wherever you want if you have a website you know like we there's a lot more flexibility now than there was 20 years ago so yeah to to your point chain retailer yeah that's great you can physically move product and you can physically be in those markets if you're a single door retailer and you're you're uh you know like tied to a geographic location doesn't mean you can't sell them somewhere else right you just got to get creative you got to be nimble you have to understand where you want to target that marketing effort, right? Like you and I have talked a lot about being targeted in marketing and communications because you have limited budget, right? And you want to be efficient with it. There's no reason you can't sell in those markets. 
Thank you for picking that up. Hey, as, I mean, yeah, this is this is the time to if if you've got to move inventory, these are all strategies that can, you can use whether you're a retailer or a manufacturer or a distributor. Yeah, yeah. killer. Move that um, inventory. Move it. Move it. Move it. The other thing, so I'm I'm going to get back to this S and P Global report because I'm excited about it. And I'll put a link in the episode description too, so PFB members can go find it in the member center. You know, like I've mentioned before that we have this supply chain risk analysis that takes into account macroeconomic trends in the US, but it also takes a look at individual countries where the bike industry does business. And so I think the the six countries included in the report are mainland China, um, let's see, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, and Vietnam. And this report does like such a killer job of tying together all these different events in these countries and understanding how it affects the bike industry, right? So so in the report, it does talk about tensions between the U.S. and China as the U.S. shot down a, a balloon and as conversations either evolved or didn't evolve between those two countries and everything and, and describing how that could affect our ability to produce products in China and eventually bring them to the U.S., right? I think having all that context is super helpful for us to kind of back away from the the bike industry for just a second and see how some of these larger events could affect our ability to create a product, bring it to market, and successfully sell it. That's awesome that you get that, and that's awesome that you can provide that to your members. What a valuable resource. Seriously. And I mean, yeah. I will tell you that we, we, you know, that's, that's amazing. Um, one of the things as a researcher that I always use, and, and if you're, if you're planning on manufacturing offshore, um, you're interested in what's going on uh, between the U S and, and different countries. And also I wanted to ask you, is Bangladesh on that list as well? No, it's just, um, no. okay. just those six I listed. But you can check if you're, you know, if you don't have access to such a great resource, one of the things that you can use, and frankly, something that every everybody should should be looking at from time to time if you're interested, is a CIA fact book. Yeah, yeah. You pointed me in that direction a while ago. That That is really helpful. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you like, can go country by country by country. It'll talk about trade with that country. It'll talk about any risks that are that you might experience in that country. It'll talk about our relationship with that country. Yeah, it's excellent. It's an excellent resource. Uh, the theme for my 22 and now 23 has been triangulation, you know, and and understanding that there is no one resource that we can use that's going to tell us exactly what we need, but bringing together all of these different resources and kind of stitching them together in a way that's going to help us better understand the market and having that CIA resource, right? Like that's another data point that we can use as context to better understand how we're operating in all these different areas and what threats might be looming over the horizon or what opportunities there might be for us to go change the way we're doing business a little bit and um, and gain that advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. Finding new sources of data that you can rely upon to give you valuable information is kind of what we're all about, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. It's important that's why we started that. a podcast. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Sun, Sun uh, Tzu was right all along. Better information means you win battles. Um, but yeah, this the having information about the infrastructure of our country in, in addition to, and, and having something that's specifically focused on your industry, um, yeah. like this like this report from S&P is amazing. I'm excited. We're, we're going to talk about it at the Bicycle Leadership Conference 
in in Dana Point mid March, which I think might be a week after this episode airs, or it might be the yeah, week it airs. And uh, I'm out next week, so yeah, we might be talking about it right now when you're listening to this episode. But uh, yeah, just just an overview of like what this work is and and what our goal is with this research, and then we'll do a webinar for um, with with S and P Global, like walking everyone through like exactly what's contained in the report, how to make useless information, how it could change the way that you're making decisions at your organization. I'm so, excited yeah, I'm, for that. I'm, I'm thrilled. Count me in. This count me really in. Cool. Totally. Yeah. Can, can you slide me? Can you slide me an invite? Yeah. Come yeah. On. I think I think we can manage <laughs> that. We'll get you a VIP access since you're a podcast co-host. Sweet. Sweet. I'm glad. And I feel, you know, if, if you want to listen to the podcast, check out People for Bikes. Sign on up. The benefit of being a People for Bikes member is that you have access to research and data that you might not otherwise have access to. There's a lot of small organizations that enjoy more cost savings by becoming a member of People for Bikes and engaging in all the great work we do, and then receiving as a member benefit market research that we conduct, market research that we provide from other contractors that they wouldn't uh, be able to afford on their own otherwise, you know, because tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I don't want to give away that competitive advantage for free, right? I want to take care of the folks that pay our bills. So, yeah. Become a member of People for Bikes. We can talk about all this research in greater depth. Okay, I will. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. I did it. It only took however many episodes and I got you to join. That's great. <laughs> now, Get you know, you're going to you have to join OIA. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this I, is just actually, a shameless plug for, for People for Bikes, but I, I totally <laughs> hung you out to drive with OIA. Sorry. Well, I was thinking, you know, you could just donate a thousand bucks to the Thrive Outside program and the Outdoor Foundation will let you off the hook. There we go. Huh? All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.